Easter. We're in the Easter season, and uh, rather than let the season slip away, I'd like to try to live with it for a while and, uh, and look at, uh, over the course of these next weeks, look at a few of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And this is a favorite, so this is where we'll start. Luke 24, beginning at verse 13, this narrative of uh, Jesus meeting with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So hear the word of God. That very day, two of them, that is two of the disciples, two of those um, who had been gathered together on resurrection morning and from whom the women went to the tomb and to whom they returned to make reports about what they had seen with this uh, empty tomb thing. Two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's worth thinking about itself. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad, meaning they came to a stop. They were walking and they came to an abrupt stop and looked sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was with them at table, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, 
saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thanks again uh, should be given to you uh, for your word. Um, But thanks should also be given for your spirit who comes in conjunction with your word. We pray by your grace and in mercy to do in our hearts what you, Lord Jesus Christ, did for those disciples on that road. Lord, open our eyes and cause our hearts to burn within us. Only you can do this work, and we pray that you would. And we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So this is one of several post-resurrection appearances that are recorded in the Gospels, this, uh, this narrative of Jesus walking along the road and then encountering these, uh, these two disciples who had been with the group earlier that day. And, uh, you know, I just I wish I had the ability for us to to get on the time machine, and even more than that, I wish I had the ability for us to crawl into the skin of these two people who were walking along the road. We typically think of them as men. Uh, Maybe they were, but some of the commentators think, actually, that it may have been Cleopas and his wife. The text doesn't tell us that uh, they were men. just says two of them, two folks walking along the road. There were clearly women in the company of those Uh, who were gathered together. Women went out from that company of people to the tomb, and it could be, we don't know, but it could be that Cleopas and his wife are walking back to Emmaus. And I wish that we could crawl into their skin and could feel, really could feel, what it is that they are feeling, because what they're feeling is sadness. Okay? So, so, let this be a metaphor for you, okay? Let this be a, more than just a picture, more than just a narrative, but, but try to crawl into the skin of these folks and understand that behind you is Jerusalem, a place that had been filled with so much hope. Right? Hope. And in front of you is Emmaus, And Emmaus is the rest of your life. You know, you're going back home. And behind you is dashed, crushed, broken, destroyed hope. The two words are in the text. They're sad, and the reason they're sad, they say, is because we had hoped that this was the one who would redeem Israel, who would bring redemption, who would bring deliverance, who would bring freedom, who would bring life, who would bring forgiveness, 
who would get rid of the Romans, who would establish his rule and reign, who would bring shalom, who would do what the whole of the Old Testament prepares us for, this righteous king who would come and bring the peace and reign of a good, gracious, compassionate God to this earth. And you know what that means? It means the end of death. It means the end of sickness. It means the end of suffering. It means the end of hunger. It means the end of thirst. It means the end of broken relationships. It means the end of every estrangement. All of those things, all wrapped up in this word, hope. We had hoped. And like a house of cards, (laughs) crashed to the ground. And what replaced the hope was sadness. So look back over your shoulder. Look back over your shoulder at the Jerusalem that's behind you. It's back there for everybody. In some form or fashion, it's back there. And what's in front of you is more Emmaus. Tromping down a dusty road, sucking dust, hot thirsty, and longing for the thing that you thought was back there. Hopes reduced to rubble. That's what they're feeling. That's what they're thinking. That's what they say. Luke tells us that they looked sad. How did he know that? How did he know that? Go back to the first verses of Luke's gospel. He says, to Theophilus, this one to whom he's written this very lengthy letter, the first of two letters, his second one is the book of Acts, says that he's investigated everything thoroughly. I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that Luke found Cleopas. And Luke sat down with Cleopas and said something like, tell me about that walk along the road. And they said, well, we were on our way from Jerusalem, And we were more sad than we have ever been in our lives. And so Luke records it and writes it. Jesus encounters them, asks them what's going on. They say, you don't know? He says, I don't know. Tell me. And they come to an abrupt halt. Their countenance falls even farther than it's already fallen. And Luke records their sadness. So here we are on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus with the rest of life in front of us. A whole lot of sadness, at least encroaching the edges of our hearts, if not permeating our hearts. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus say? What is, what is Jesus ministry to these two disciples and to you and me along the road to Emmaus. I quoted Proverbs 13, 12 in in my prayer. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred, hopes unfulfilled make the heart sick. What does Jesus say to these disciples who are walking along the road? Let me suggest to you, not surprisingly, that there are three things at least that pop out of this passage. 
that are sources of hope. They are stunningly hopeful, I think, if we reflect on them as we make our way along the dusty road, sucking dust, hot, thirsty, hungry, with sadness, at the very least, encroaching upon the edges of our hearts. Let's just, I mean, let's be honest, folks. It's there. I know it's there. It's there for you. It's there for me. It's there for anybody who lives in this fallen and broken world. So what does Jesus give these these two folks and us in the midst of that? Three things. First, there is the person of Jesus. Then there is the ministry of Jesus. And then there is the very presence of Jesus. Person of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and the very presence of Jesus. Look at what these two people say in response to Jesus' question. Jesus asked them what, what they're discussing. Uh, and without knowing that they're talking about him, they in effect say, we're talking about you. They don't know they're talking about him, but they're talking about him. And Jesus, after they say what they say, one person has described these verses 19 through 24 as the gospel according to Cleopas. The God, if you read them, even though Cleopas at this point doesn't believe it or hasn't been fully embraced by it, hasn't been engaged by it, if you read those verses again, those verses contain the gospel. We thought he was the one who was to come. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. We thought he was going to be the one to come and redeem Israel. We, we, we've heard since that the tomb was empty and that he's alive. See, they haven't, they haven't embraced it or been embraced by it. Their eyes are kept from seeing it until a little bit later. But if you think about it, those verses are the gospel according to Cleopas. And those salient points of Cleopas' response to Jesus become the gospel that the apostles herald as they go forth from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the gospel according to Cleopas, but he doesn't understand it. He doesn't see it, and neither does his partner yet. And so what does Jesus do in response to what they've said? He takes them to himself. He takes them to himself, to a person. They're talking about a person. And Jesus in response, Jesus in response to them, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, himself. They're asking about a person. They're puzzled that he wasn't the person. And Jesus, when he responds to them, takes them to a person. Now, I just, I got to remind you of this, folks. Maybe because I need to be reminded of it. And maybe because... There might be somebody here in the room for whom this hasn't really fully come into focus. I remind myself, I remind you, and, and would seek to persuade anybody who needs to be persuaded that this, in essence, is what Christianity is. It is a person. And it is me in relationship to a person. When Jesus responds to these two disciples, he doesn't give them a systematic theology. 
He doesn't give them a moral code. He doesn't give them the right experience. What my friend, friend of mine in Orlando calls a quiver in the liver. Look, there is a theological content to the Christian faith. There is an ethic. I say this to you all the time. There is an ethic in the Christian faith, okay? Psalm 16, you have shown me the path of life, O Lord. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is a path. There is an ethic to the Christian life. And it's a wonderful path. Because it leads into the presence of Almighty God. But it doesn't begin with the path. And there is a quiver in the liver. And the quiver in the liver that you will know in the presence of the risen Jesus, in whom are to be found pleasures forevermore, is a quiver in the liver that will not cease, but will only be enlarged and expanded across the totality of eternity. Take the most significant relationship that you have and the deepest joy you have ever known in that relationship. Multiply it to the nth degree and spread it across the totality of eternity. And you begin to scratch the surface of what it is to know the pleasures which are found in Christ at the right hand of the Father. And all of the pleasures are found in a person. Not in right ideas in your brain. Not in a moral code that you try to keep but fail to keep continually. Not in the episodic quivers in the liver that can be explained as much in terms of pizza as they can religious experience. But the person of Jesus. The disciples on the road are taken back to Jesus the person. Wouldn't you love to know what happened between verses 27 and 28? I think I've said this to you before. Clearly, obviously, the best Bible study ever conducted on the planet, led by the supreme and best Bible teacher the world has ever seen or known, the Lord Jesus Christ. And wouldn't you love to know where Jesus went in that Bible study, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, meaning the former prophets, the non-writing prophets, as well as the latter prophets, the writing prophets, the major and the minor prophets, and everything that gets tucked in between, all of the wisdom literature and all of the writings and everything else. Moses and all the prophets. Wouldn't you love to know where Jesus took them? Don't know this for sure. I'm banking that he began with Genesis 3.15. The seminal promise. The first promise. Remember what was said? That a warrior king is going to come, and when the warrior king comes, he's going to conquer by crushing the head of the serpent. And in crushing the head of the serpent, he will establish his kingly rule and reign. He will destroy the evil one. He will overturn all evil. He will eradicate his universe of all evil. And he will initiate and institute the shalom of God, which God is pleased to pour out upon his creation and those who inhabit. 
And then he might have said, and you remember how my ministry began? Read the first chapter of Mark. I pointed this out to you, I think. You read the first chapter of Mark after Jesus is anointed for his ministry by the Holy Spirit and is commissioned by the Father to carry out his ministry. The first miracle he performs is the miracle of delivering a demon-possessed man. And what is that? It's a declaration of war. The warrior king has come and he's making an assault on the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. He's beginning to crush his head. I don't know. I don't know where Jesus might have taken him. Maybe he took him to 1 Kings 4. This is your homework assignment for the week. Read 1 Kings 4, verses 20 and following. It's a snapshot. It's a picture of Solomon's reign. Solomon ruling over all of Judah and Israel. Ruling with abundance. Ruling with righteousness. It's a snapshot of what the result would be of the king, the warrior king, when he comes. Maybe he took him there. And they would have said along the road, you mean that was about you? Oh, yes, because I'm the greater Solomon. Don't know. Maybe he took him to Deuteronomy 18, the promise of a prophet greater than Moses. Maybe he took him to 2 Samuel 7, the promise of a king to sit on the throne of David. Maybe he took him to Psalm 2, the son who is ensconced, who is enthroned in Zion upon the holy hill. Maybe he took him to Psalm 1610. I'm guessing this is one of the ones they did get to. You will not abandon your soul to Hades, you will not allow my soul to suffer corruption. Psalm 16.10. Maybe he took him all of those places. But I'm guessing, I'm guessing that he took him to Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And I'm guessing that maybe he took them back to Genesis 3.15 to remind them that before evil is fully and finally vanquished, and before the evil one is fully and finally destroyed, there will be suffering. There will be suffering. O foolish ones, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. I'm guessing that that's the particular thing that they talked the most about. I don't know this, but given what Jesus focuses on in verse 25, I'm drawing what I think is a legitimate conclusion that at the core and heart of this Bible study from Moses all the way through all of the prophets, Jesus focused, while perhaps on all of these things that are true of him, focused most specifically on the necessity of his suffering and the inevitability of yours and mine in the midst of this fallen, broken, sin-plagued, death-covered world. What does Paul say? In Philippians 3, he rejoices to know the power of Christ's resurrection 
and the fellowship of his sufferings. I'm guessing that what Jesus focused on as he focused on his person first was the inevitability of his suffering and the inevitability of the suffering of those who follow him. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer all these things and then enter into his glory? But look, he doesn't stop just with that. He doesn't stop with the idea of suffering. He doesn't leave us in despair. It's interesting that the disciples, these two disciples, while they didn't fully get it, they weren't fully engaged in it, weren't fully engaged by it, they still knew some things that were right and were true and were accurate and were spot on. And the second of them is the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus. There are only two words, just a little phrase here, that summarize the ministry of Jesus. Verse 19, as they respond to Jesus, or as as they respond to his question, they say of Jesus of Nazareth that he was a prophet, mighty indeed in word. Mighty indeed in word. They were right. That he was a prophet, mighty indeed and in word. These two things that characterize the ministry of Jesus, this twofold ministry of Jesus, preaching and teaching, and then the display of compassion in things like the healing of the leper, Jesus touching one who would never be touched, Jesus allowing himself to be touched by those whom no one else would touch. The woman with the hemorrhage, the woman who had suffered at the hands of doctors for a dozen years, dead little girls in that same chapter who make you ritually and ceremonially unclean because they are dead. He wasn't afraid to touch what is unclean. What's an encouragement to my heart in the midst of the sadness that I see around me, that I have to live with, that I have to fight against? What is it that Jesus says to me in the midst of this broken down world? Look at my person and look at my ministry. Look at the power and authority of my teaching. And look at the manner in which I display my compassion in deeds of mercy and kindness. And again, what do we see in that? What conclusion do we draw from that? Well, that this is the incarnation of truth that Jesus is that prophet who was promised in Deuteronomy 8. Jesus is that one who is given the very word of God and who speaks that very word so that whenever he speaks, he speaks absolute truth and every word may be trusted. And his work, his preaching and teaching are so anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit that even the reluctant are constrained to acknowledge it. Read Mark's gospel. Again, read Luke's gospel. Read Luke chapter 4. Where Jesus goes back to Nazareth and he preaches in his hometown. And the audience, the audience speaks of the gracious words that are falling from his lips. Now, in the very next breath, they want to kill him. They want to throw him off the edge of a cliff. But there's something compelling about Jesus. Something compelling about his truth. 
Spirit anointed, the Spirit resting upon him, constraining even those who don't want to believe to believe. I've told this story this last week a couple of times. I'll tell it to all of you. It's the story of Benjamin Franklin. Franklin, who was George Whitfield's stateside publisher. He published here. They weren't the states then, but they were going to be the states. They were still the colonies. He was his colony-side publisher, published all of Whitfield's sermons and pamphlets and tracts and everything else. And Franklin knew that Whitfield was coming to Philadelphia, and Franklin was not a Christian. He didn't believe it. may have been influenced by it in, in ways of which he was probably not even aware He was an anti-supernaturalist. He was a deist. He didn't believe in Christianity. I don't care what people tell you, he didn't. And he knew Whitfield was coming to Philadelphia, and he went went into the center of town in Philadelphia to hear Whitfield preach, and he said that he resolved, you can read this in his journals, in his autobiography, he resolved before he went only to give a copper. Because, see, Whitfield would take up an offering for an orphanage in Georgia. But Whitfield wasn't going to be taken in. He wasn't going to be seduced by Whitfield's powers of persuasion. And so he resolved before he went to the meeting only to give a a copper. And halfway through the sermon, halfway through this spirit-anointed, truth-filled proclamation of the gospel, Whitfield resolved only to give a silver. But by the end, when the plates were circulated, the baskets were circulated, he dropped a gold piece into the offering. So compelled and constrained was he by the power of what he was hearing that against his will, he gave. That's what you see in the ministry of Jesus. But not only that, you see him restoring people. You see him healing people. You see him doing these works repeatedly of casting out demons. Now let's be clear about this. Okay? Jesus works in, of miracles and of healing people and of restoring people are not just like the advanced team so that people will listen to his message. You understand what I'm saying? Jesus doesn't do the miracles just to get people's attention so that they'll listen to his sermons. Jesus does the miracles because the restoration of all things is an aspect of the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and the gospel about the king who has come. Look, it is sin that leads to all of the brokenness that you encounter in life. And so it is sin that has to be addressed and dealt with first. And so Jesus, by His life and death and resurrection, vanquishes sin. And so preaching focuses. It has to. Gospel preaching to be faithful to Christ, to be faithful to the Scriptures, to be faithful to the King and the Kingdom. Gospel preaching has to focus on the one thing you don't want to face. And I don't either. I don't want to have to deal with my sin. You don't want to have to deal with your sin. But folks, until sin is dealt with fully, completely, in the deepest parts of us, the life for which we're intended will never be ours. 
And so Jesus in his ministry focuses on our need of redemption. He preaches the gospel, sin, repentance, and trust in him. But to confirm the authority of it, he performs miracles, miracles which are pictures of what it will look like when sin is fully and finally eradicated, all of life completely restored. You understand what I'm saying? You understand the difference? He's not just showing off. He's showing us what it looks like when sin is finally overcome. That all of life is restored. And so what encourages me as I'm on this road from Emmaus, sucking dust, hot, thirsty, longing for something more, hopes at so many points along the way, shattered and dashed, what encourages me? The person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, that it is truth and that it is compassion. Zach mentioned... And I, I, too, I thank you for making that announcement. I, I really am so grateful that so many of you came to our home on Wednesday night to meet Peter and Esther. Um, and I want to talk about that some more this evening. So if you, you know, if you weren't able to be with us on Wednesday and you'd like to hear some stuff, please come tonight because I want to follow that up with just some thoughts and observations and what I think are some opportunities. But one of the things that came out of these meetings this last week is when you go to Tanzania, you got to ask the question, what is going to compel people to listen to the Christian gospel as over against the Muslim gospel? You see, if the gospel of the kingdom does not take in the totality of life, and works of mercy and compassion are not performed as indications to people of what it is that Christ came to do. Yes, forgive. Yes, deliver. Yes, redeem. Yes, cleanse. And restore so that there never is any thirst or there never is any hunger and there never is any brokenness anymore. If we don't demonstrate the reality of that gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, by works of mercy and compassion... Do you know who will do those works of mercy and compassion? The Muslim world. And people will believe the Muslim gospel. Because the Muslim gospel, which is not a gospel, but is a lie, a dangerous, frighteningly dangerous lie, people will believe the Muslim gospel because of medical clinics and schools and wells in villages. And let's just be, and I'm not, look, I said this the other day, I love my car, I put gasoline in my car, it enables me to go places and do things, but you do understand that the gasoline that you purchase and which you put in your automobile very, very often, very, very largely comes from Arab states, and so it is my money through those Arab states that is making it way to Tanzania that is putting up clinics and building schools and putting wells in the ground. I'm animated about this. I'm more convinced and convicted about it than I have been before. That if I don't open my pocket and engage in ministries of mercy and compassion like Jesus did in those places where Arab oil money is building clinics, building schools, and putting wells in villages, we will lose. At the human level, we will lose. And so we've got to be engaged in works of compassion and mercy so that the gospel we preach will be heard 
and we trust by the grace of God believed. So what do we look at on this dusty, dirty road, sucking down dust, hot, thirsty, longing for more? The person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, the reality of word and deed as evidences of the kingdom in the midst of this world. And then finally, and this is a sermon in itself, and I can't, can't do it, out of time. Finally, there's the person of Jesus, there's the ministry of Jesus, but you know what I need and you need more than anything else? I need the presence of Jesus. I need the presence of Jesus. I want my heart to burn, friends. I want my heart to burn in the way that the hearts of these disciples burned. Didn't our hearts burn as he walked with us along the road? Didn't they burn as he opened, as he opened? See, that's where this has got to be a sermon all its own. As he opened up this, I can't open the scriptures to you. Do you see that? I can't do it. I can yell and scream and rant and rave and do my best, but I cannot open the scriptures to you. Jesus in the mighty power and person of His Spirit now resonant in the church is the only one who can open the Scriptures for you and me. What do you pray for when you come on Sunday mornings? You want to get more ideas? You want to get a quiver in the liver? You want to get a moral code for the week to come? That's not what I want. That's not what I need. I need the presence of Jesus walking with me along this dusty road so that my heart burns within me. And then at the end of the day, when it's dark and it's dangerous to get up from Emmaus and go back to Jerusalem because there are robbers along the highway, I get up and go anyway because I don't care. That's what they did. They retraced their steps back to Jerusalem. They had to go back to Jerusalem, find the disciples, and tell them it's all true. It's all true. All because the person of Jesus in his ministry of word and deed was present powerfully. That's what I need. That's what we need as a church. That's what I ask you to pray for. So what can restore our joy in the midst of our sadnesses as we walk along the road, eating dust, hot, thirsty, person of Jesus in the ministry of Jesus with Jesus fully present among us. Got to stop. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I pray that you would help us with these things. Um, I pray that you would help me. I confess to you I am sorry. I confess to you that I look to so many things other than you for my heart to be encouraged, for my joy to be satisfied. Forgive me. Lord Jesus, would you make yourself bigger in my vision than you are? And would you satisfy in some small but life-changing way the deep longing and desire of my own heart? And would you, Lord Jesus, chip away at the sadness that chips away at our joy so that the sadness might be diminished and the joy might be increased so that our hearts would burn within us with joy. Lord, as we come to this table, would you be pleased uh, to use this 
as yet another means by which our hearts are stirred up and our hearts are made glad because of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask that we take just a moment um, and we'll sing uh, after the communion, but I'm going to ask that we take just a moment um, and quiet our hearts before the Lord. I'd like to invite you to reflect some. Uh, Just think about these things, and then in a minute I'd like to lead us to the Lord's table. But let's be quiet before the Lord for just a minute.